It is such a joy for me to be able to share with you the public launch today of what we're calling Renewing the Promise, of us receiving the covenant of God and making sure that we do everything within our power to be able to pass that promise forward into future generations. What an incredible legacy that this church has. And we know that our best days are still ahead of us as a congregation. The Renewing the Promise initiative that we're a part of is going to be about refreshing and renovating around 50% of our church's campus. Much of those things have to do with things that are behind the scenes, like a, a kind of a, an HVAC system that is well past its life cycle, and everything from changing some aesthetics to how we relate to one another, our first ever green space. I cannot wait to tell you about all the different comprehensive aspects of what it means for us to be able to move the gospel forward in this generation. And I am so excited for us to take the next month to be able to have moments where we talk about it. One of my promises for you is that the sermon is not going to be a glorified timeshare sales pitch. Because we could build the greatest buildings in the world, and if they are not inhabited by the truth and the reality of God's good news, it will not take us to where we desire to go. And so we will make reference and we will share and we will talk and you will hear more about that. But I promise that it's not about holding you captive as a congregation. It's about us pulling together to be able to do something that we couldn't do just through ordinary business and an ordinary time. And so I hope you'll participate, you'll prayer, you'll think, you'll ask questions, you'll be curious, and we'll move forward ahead. Amen? All right, turn with me, if you will, in your journals or in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. And as we've been talking about all year, the story and the significance of the gospel, we're talking about the story that, of the gospel that Matthew gives to us and how that the premise of Matthew is that God is making all things new. And when we get to the point of chapters 11 and 12, looking at chapters 11 last week and chapter 12 this week, Chapters 11 and 12 are held together by a question that is anchored at the very beginning of chapter 11, and that's this. This is John the Baptist asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? In other words, chapters 11 and 12 are about who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And in chapter 11, there are three different portraits that come to us, three different pictures rooted in the Old Testament of who this Jesus is, the promised Messiah, the coming judge, and our present Savior. And then by the time you get to chapter 12, what we discover is we're seeing the identity of Jesus, but we're seeing it through the lens of three different controversies, a Sabbath controversy, a controversy surrounding the Holy Spirit and spirituality, and a controversy having to do with signs and wonders. And you can learn a lot about a person when they go through a controversy. Back when I was in early high school, I was participating in the Baylor University Science Fair. They were pulling together all kinds of different high school students, and they were enabling high school students to be able to, from the region, to be able to come together and do a variety of different experiments, and then to make presentations on the Baylor campus in one of the gymnasiums in order to compete for a variety of prizes to see how your science experiment would stack 
stack up against others. And that Baylor faculty were going to be the ones who graded the assignments and gave out the variety of awards. My dad is an ophthalmologist, and we would sit at the dinner table, and we would hear grotesque stories of what happens to people's eyes throughout the course of a day. Lots of therapy, but I'm totally past that now. <laughs> but because we had a, a family kind of love for the gift of sight, the science experiment that I decided to do was an experiment on the different household chemicals that you and I keep in our drawers and our cabinets and their impact on the human eye. And as I was having a conversation with my father about how we might be able to do this experiment, knowing that I could not experiment on real human eyes with household chemicals, my dad shared with me, he said, did you know that the dog cornea is virtually identical to a human cornea? And so he contacted a local vet, and over the course of a month, for dogs, no dogs were harmed in this science experiment, okay? For dogs that, were, uh, that had already deceased, that the vet would harvest the, um, the corneas and keep them so that we might be able to do the experiment. And so there I am at my house with, you know, a kitchen counter, and I'm taking everything from, like, liquid Drano to just water as the control group, and experimenting and, and amazing, using photographs and video to be able to chronicle the difference of the impact of these chemicals. I show up at the Baylor Science Fair. I've got this great photos, videos. I've got, I know I am going to win an award. And as people are passing by my science experiment, I see people whispering to one another. I see people pointing their fingers. And then eventually, when the group of faculty come over to my science experiment with the board and the presentation, they're kind of whispering, and they said to me, we're sorry, but we have to kick you out of the Baylor Science Fair. I said, excuse me? And they said, there is not going to be allowed to be any experimentation on animals and to be able to compete in the Baylor Science Fair. I'm like, I'm not experimenting on animals. And they said, well, you're experimenting on parts of animals. And we have this back and forth. And I noticed that there's this one professor kind of standing at the back. And eventually, they literally asked me to pack up my stuff and leave. I got kicked out of the Baylor University Science Fair. And I've never been more proud of my life. But that one professor who was kind of loitering at the back, he came forward to me, and he handed me a science book. It was a book from his own bookshelf that he had grabbed when he found out what was about to happen. And he said to me, I understand that there are these technicalities of the rules that are written, and I know that you did not violate the spirit of the law, even if you did violate the letter of the law. And he handed me that science book, and he says, I hope that you never stop seeking to discover the truth and to help people by what you learn. I believe that that book is something greater than I could have gotten if I had gotten a certificate that had been framed and it actually competed. And I learned something about myself as well as about the person in the midst of that controversy. When you go through a controversy and when you are with others in a controversy, you find out what they're made of because it provides a great deal of clarity about who you are really dealing with and what their values are. And so let's see Jesus in the midst of a Sabbath controversy and find out who he is and what he's come to give us.
Matthew chapter 12, starting in the first verse. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests, and the temple profane the Sabbath are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice." you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value of what is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out, and it was restored, healthy like the other one. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. What we see in today's story is what life can devolve into if we do not have the good news of Jesus Christ. That without Jesus, there are certain very predictable patterns of what will happen if Jesus and his good news are pushed to the margins and away from our life. Three things I want you to notice in this passage. One, that without the gospel, mercies become burdens. Will you say that with me? Mercies become burdens. The gift of Shabbat, the gift of the Sabbath, is always meant to be a mercy. It was always all the way from the beginning of the dawn of time how God broke, kind of uh, formed into the very fabric of the universe for there to be a rhythm of grace. And that, that God demonstrated this by resting, that we are not machines and that we require the gift of replenishment. And that God renews this promise for us, this gift of Sabbath on the heels of them being going from enslavement into freedom, that what happens with Sabbath is that we are reminded that we are not the sum total of what we are able to accomplish with our minds or with our hands, and that we are called to have the gift that is rest. And yet, over time, if you don't keep grace at the center of your life and your spirituality, one of the things that can happen is that something that's meant to be a gift, like Sabbath, turns into a burden instead of a blessing. There's an author by the name of Frederick Bachman who's written a series of novels, and one of those novels is this one that's called The Winners, which focuses on a hockey town up in Canada. 
I don't know that this is intended by the author, but it feels like to me that a town that should be centered around God gets centered around the obsession with a sport and hockey, and that this is what life is like if you don't have God at the center and you put a sport at the center of your life. Substitute SEC football, and you might have a great social commentary about our community. There's a young boy in that community that grows up in the poor part of town, He doesn't have the same privileges and access to the kinds of coaches and early training in sport, and yet he works harder than anybody else and has a natural gift and ability and becomes an incredibly accomplished hockey player when he's in high school. And yet what happens over time, the more he succeeds, the more pressure he feels. It's written like this in the novel. I'm proud of you, the old man said when they parted in the parking lot. To him, it was just a kind thing to say, but to Ahmad, it was another hundred tons of rock in his backpack. Suddenly, it was never enough. In just a few months, everyone went from talking about what Ahmad had given to the town to what he owed it. And so he bowed his head and he trained even harder. Can turns into will, and then will becomes must. You must go all the way now to the NHL. Hope becomes pressure, and happiness becomes stress. What begins as a life-giving gift of the ability to be able to play and to have recreation and to enjoy the gift that is a sport and the competition all of a sudden became like a hundred pounds of rocks in his backpack. For you and for me, and particularly for young people today, the amount of pressure that people carry tells me that one of the great curses of our day is that of burden. And that many of the gifts that God has given to us that are supposed to be gifts are like a heavy weight on our shoulders. The way that Jesus talks about it to help us to understand how the gospel changes this is by quoting the prophet Hosea, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Every worldview, every other religion, every other perspective, every other culture becomes eventually demanding and consuming of us that it says that you need to sacrifice in order to be whole. The very revolutionary thing about Jesus Christ is that he has paid the sacrifice for us. And that as a result of that sacrifice, what we get to swim in is not the treadmill of ever having to give and to do more, but to rest in the grateful gift that is the mercy of God. Without the gospel the mercies that you have will eventually become burdens. And without the gospel, ministry eventually becomes accusation. Did you notice in the Sabbath controversy, did you notice what happened in the story in the sense of that the disciples are walking through the field, they're hungry, they didn't glean in those days and ages the edge of the field so that poor and travelers might be able to grab food in their need along the way, and the disciples grab some of that food because they are traveling, and they eat it. It was lawful to eat on the Sabbath, but they said that you could not gather the food on the Sabbath, and they do, how dare you, and they point fingers 
In the same way with the example of the sheep that had fallen into the pit, they sit around and they stand there and kind of an academic experiment of is it lawful to help out in this particular type of situation? They're trying to trap Jesus, they're trying to trick Jesus, and most of all, they are trying to accuse Jesus and his followers. You can pick any single hot-button issue of this day, any single one of them, whether it is about race or sexuality or abortion, and behind all of those things is a need and a ministry that is getting neglected amidst all of the finger-pointing and the accusations One of the things that as the gospel takes more and more a backseat into the edge of our society, have you noticed that the temperature of accusation is rising and the ministry is dwindling? The thing about Jesus that is categorically different about the way that the religious leaders in his day and age handled it, the reason that it's different is that they look at the man who has a withered hand and they do not see him. They see a problem, they see an issue, and they're filled with accusations. Jesus sees somebody in need. And so Jesus heals why they want to stand around and point fingers. One of the reasons that the gospel is so desperately needed today is not that we don't need to talk about important and difficult issues, but we have to push past the accusation and the acidity and the way that we are communicating with one another today to get to the core issues of dealing with people and engaging in ministry. For you see, without the gospel, mercies become burdens and ministry devolves into accusation. And without the gospel, according to this passage, worth becomes pretending. In the story that Jesus tells about the sheep, a parable of a sheep that's fallen into a hole, that of course that you would help the sheep that was in that moment in need. Jesus says this, he says, are you not more valuable than a sheep? When Jesus sees that man with a withered hand, even though it be the Sabbath day, he sees not just a need, he sees someone created in God's image of infinite value. One of the things that happens for us if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not at the center of our lives One of the key phrases that Jesus uses over and over again with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders is he calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite in Greek means actor. I think a better translation of it is someone who's a pretender. They're faking it. Social science is catching up to the extent of this in our society. It's something that's known as imposter syndrome, feeling like you are not worthy even of your own success. They'll find me out. It could have been anybody. I just worked hard. It was just luck. I'm a fraud. And the irony is, is that even the more successful that you are, the more likely you are to feel like an imposter. And so I love this next image here portrayed on the back of a napkin. 
of how we have an incredible tendency to discount the inherent value that's been given to us. And that one of the secret fears that we all feel is that we're just pretending, that we're an imposter. And yet what the gospel does is that the gospel instills within us a worth that cannot come from self-help or self-affirmation. The gospel gives us a real value, a real worth, and you don't have to pretend anymore. And the pressure can dissipate and disappear. When Jesus enters into this controversy, Jesus says two things that absolutely shocked them. He said that something greater than the temple was here, and he said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Who was the one that gave them the Sabbath to begin with? God gave them the Sabbath. The temple was the place where they said that God's presence uniquely resided with them. And Jesus is saying there is a vehicle, there is a means that is greater than what we have received in the gift of the temple and that Jesus himself is in charge of the Sabbath, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Their heads explode. And did you notice at the end of today's reading that they went out from this moment on and they wanted to destroy him? For you see, there are systems and worldviews in place that are threatened by Jesus being Lord of all and the one who has come to give us uniquely God's presence. And so you need to know that this is not just some sort of benign situation, that there's far more going on here. Right before this story is a famous passage where Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right in the midst of the swirling controversies, Jesus, as our present Savior, gives us the greatest invitation of all, And I don't want to take for granted whether or not you know this invitation for you. The first part of this invitation is to admit that we need help. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Do you feel the burdens of life? Do you feel the weight like a mot with a backpack on your shoulders? The first step is to come to Jesus admitting that you need that help. Within the last couple of years, the Georgia Aquarium added a significant exhibit. They added a shark exhibit, and our youngest daughter, Ashby, got to do an internship at the Georgia Aquarium. In the shark exhibit, when I saw it for the first time, I learned something that I had never known before. And that is, is that sharks like this one here, cue the Jaws music, sharks like this one 
Not all sharks are this way, but once they're born, they never stop moving. That they can't actually breathe if they're not swimming. That they don't sleep like the same way that we would sleep in the sense that they stop, because if they were to stop, they would no longer be able to breathe. For sharks like this one, it is the mantra, swim or die. You will never see a shark like this not moving unless it is dead. I know way too many people that feel like a shark, that they have to swim or they'll be dead. And so whether or not we're afraid to be able to admit that we're afraid to stop, we're afraid to get off the treadmill, we're afraid to rest. And the first step with the gospel, because the gospel is good news, but it's first bad news because it means that we need help. Are you willing to admit that you need help? Secondly, receive the yoke. Yoke is a ancient agricultural image, so it requires a little bit of an explanation. Here's a picture of a yoke. It means two things, according to Jesus. One, it means that you are sharing the load with another. You're sharing the load with him. You're doing life with him. But the yoke also means that there is, uh, the yoke was a symbol of the teaching of a rabbi, that we get to learn not about him, but from him. And that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There were 613 different laws in the Old Testament that you had to keep track of in your mind. And Jesus' way is easier. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I love the way that Dale Bruner puts it when he says it like this. In the midst of our brokenness, instead of escape, Jesus offers a piece of equipment the yoke, that first we admit that we need help, and then secondly, we join with Jesus, and we learn from him, and he'll help carry the burdens, and finally, to trust the heart of God. In all of the different 89 different chapters that there are in all of the Gospels together, In all those chapters, there's only one moment where Jesus actually describes his own heart. And that's at the end of chapter 11, towards the beginning of chapter 12, when he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. What you believe about God is the most significant thing about you. If you believe that God is angry, if you believe that God is upset, if you believe that God is is here to condemn you. Whatever you believe about God will shape and guide you throughout your life, whether you say, whether you believe in God or not. What you think about ultimate things, what you think about God is the most substantive and significant thing about you. And how you respond to his great invitation is the most important question that you will ever answer. True story of a guy by the name of Todd who was four years older than his girlfriend. He graduated college before she did, and once he had graduated every year for six years in a row, at Valentine's Day, he would propose to her. For six years in a row, she said, no, not yet. On the seventh year, a good biblical number, by the way, 
on the seventh year, on their Valentine's date, took her to a nice restaurant, had the ring in his pocket, but he noticed that she had brought a small gift with her. And after they had had dessert, she gave it to him and said, I want you to open this first. And on the inside of it was something, a a craft, a piece of art, something like cross-stitched or something that she had pulled together that had taken her years to do that just had one simple word on it. Yes. Yes. For the persistence of a loving God who asks us over and over again, the one word that God loves to hear is the word yes. Have you answered that question for yourself? Have you joined with him in the great love that is available to you? Here's how all of this connects to what's going on in the life of our congregation. A long time ago, they built a building in ministry. And eventually, that building, a temple, became something that it was never intended to be. A cage for God's presence, trying to contain it instead of an unleashing of the movement of God's presence. That you don't have to go all the way to the Holy Land to learn the reality of the fact that God's Spirit, that we are the temple, we get to be the bride of Christ, that we as God's people get to be the church, and that the facilities and the buildings that we have are always in service to emboldening and equipping a congregation to be able to continue to give the great invitation over and over again. Because our community, our world desperately needs what the gospel has to offer because every single moment in time, it's all about accusations and burdens and pretending. And what God is doing is raising up a new generation of people who know of their infinite worth, that they are loved, and that they are willing to say yes and do ministry when the world just wants to push the gospel to the side. That's why Jesus is so important now. And that is why we will accelerate ministry and continue to invest in this church for the future. Just a few days ago, I, along with 40 pilgrims from this congregation, were racing through the different sites of the Holy Land. And we were in the beautiful church that is located next to the Garden of Gethsemane the very garden in which Jesus knelt and prayed and said, not my will, but thy will be done. And in the midst of that church, as we came into the back, there was a group of Chinese Christians, literally from around the world, who were singing in a mass the great beloved hymn in their own native language, when I survey the wondrous cross. Trying not to disturb the situation, I captured a little bit of sound, and I've paired with it a picture I took of the church from a previous year when it was empty. I want you to just listen for a moment 
about what we ran into in the Garden of Gethsemane. coming into the back of a church and hearing followers of Jesus Christ from another culture in a much more hostile situation than ours, singing about the wondrous love of the cross of Jesus Christ. When people ask me, do you hate the fact that the church is in a really busy season right now? where we're attempting to do something extraordinary together. I'm reminded of the incredible privilege that we have, the honor that we have, both here in Atlanta and around the world, to be stewards of God's good news to a world that desperately needs to hear of the freedom and the wonder of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so let us pray. God, I want to pray for anybody today who is experiencing the weight of the burdens. Will those burdens turn into mercies? Help us to know that we don't have to pay the sacrifice because you already have done so. Lord, even in the midst of controversies, will you help us to not get sucked into the life of accusation? Instead, help us to move past how dare you and lawful into bona fide ministry. And God, help us to know that we're of infinite worth because we're created and redeemed and sustained in your image and that we don't have to pretend any longer. The gospel is the only antidote to imposter syndrome. And so, Lord, we come to you knowing that you said greater things will you do because you're going to the Father, that truly there's something greater than the temple that is here, that you are Lord of even the Sabbath day. And so, Lord, help us to admit that we need help to receive your yoke and to trust in your very heart. May we know you to be gentle and humble and that you long for us to say yes, all because of what you did in the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to look at that cross this moment and be freed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.